You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Daily Meditation Podcast, I Know What Scares You, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. I got up the other day and everything in my apartment had been stolen and replaced with an exact replica. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I called my friend and I said, come here, look at this stuff. It's all an exact replica. What do you think? He said, do I know you? You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. This, for instance, that's not dog. It's imitation. We got to it before it had time to finish. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Hey, we're back again with Dr. Brian Sharpless to talk more about his new book, which is now available everywhere books are sold, Monsters on the Couch, The Real Psychological Disorders Behind Your Favorite Movies. And I'm particularly excited because of all the things in the book that I found fascinating, 
there was one thing in particular I wanted to talk about. It's this chapter called This Is Not My Beautiful House, which is all about monsters that deal with identity. I was drawn to it because I'm fascinated by the Capgras syndrome, which shows up in a lot of neuroscience books, and Brian has lots of things to say about that. And before the credits, you heard a little clip from Stephen Wright, the comedian, and another clip from one of my favorite horror movies, John Carpenter's The Thing. I could have included many more because what we're talking about today is not movies and monsters, but the real psychological conditions that can produce some of the same uncanny moments of horror films, only in the much more consequential domain of the real world. Now, this episode has been issued with an explicit tag, and I'm telling you there's some content warning because we're going to be talking about some fun stuff, some interesting stuff, but some of these stories are about minds gone wrong, which often leads to terrible human tragedy. So if you're in a mind space where you can handle that right now, great. But if you're not, you know, hit our back catalog. We got lots of other less stressful content. Oh, hey, I think I see Brian standing right over there, ready to be interviewed. Brian? Brian? Monster Talk. Welcome back to Monster Talk, Brian Sharpless. Welcome back. It's been a while. We're supposed to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah. A couple of weeks, yeah. I think when I was looking through the book trying to pick something for us to chat about, I there was one was thing. It, well, it was. But so one, many good things. For, for me, it was one thing in particular, which was your chapter on This Is Not My Beautiful House, because it deals with this idea of identity, uh, of your own identity or the identity of others and how you mm -hmm. recognize people. And that ties yeah. into neuroscience and psychology. So he's a talking heads fan. Also yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you bring up The Thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and several other films that kind of tie mm. into this idea. And uh, the, one, one of the underlying conditions that sounds like this uh, is – something i've been fascinated with for a long time so let's uh let's discuss that uh, but first of all i yeah. guess we should tell people we're again we're excited to have you back but how's the release been going so far it's been good i've been given lots of talks i gave talks in bulgaria the uk and now i'm hitting uh some parts of the u.s on the east coast and yeah very busy very fun get to meet a lot of interesting and sometimes very strange people so it's been good i'm sure <laughs> Brian, we want to talk about chapter five on misidentification. And yes. you start this chapter with a really strange story of, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, uh, Madame Martin or Martin or, or M, as sometimes mm -hmm. she's known. Yep. If you could share a little bit of the story with us and tell us what's really going on. Yeah. So during World War One, uh, this was a woman living in Paris and she uh, visited the police one day and she gave quite a tale. It started out that she left for one day and she had a recently born son and she left him in the care of, of the nanny. She comes home and the little boy is dead. So she is just uh, beside herself with grief. She's hugging him. And then she's looking at her, her dead son's body very closely and she notices things that don't make sense. She notices that his fingernails don't quite look like she remembered them. And she also thought that he looked like he was poisoned. So she comes to the conclusion that this actually isn't her son. It was a replacement. It was a dead child that was meant to look like her son. So she tells the nanny and the nanny's like, no, this is your son. Look, he's in the same clothes. And she does not believe it. She gets very irate and nobody believes her. So she actually goes to her funeral, the funeral of the boy 
completely convinced that this is not her son. And then it gets worse. Then she believes that her daughter was replaced, but um, the daughter wasn't dead in this case. It was just replaced by a series of near identical duplicates in dozens of them, just one after the other. And nobody believes her, and, and her husband doesn't even believe her. And then she comes to the startling conclusion that her husband is also not her husband, but has been replaced. And so this kind of starts snowballing and and involves the whole of Paris eventually. And so she, when she goes to the police, she tells them that all the, the bombings that are occurring are, are done with blanks. It's not actually to destroy the city. It's to lure the, the poor citizens of Paris underground where they are tortured and then slowly replaced and the replacements are set out loose on an unsuspecting public. And she fears that it might be all over France and possibly all over the whole world. Okay. So this was the first documented case of Capgras syndrome. There, it's been written about previously, but this was the case that really became famous. And uh, Joseph Capgras was the, the doc who reported it, and it now bears his name. So really a fascinating idea. You know, what's more terrifying, terrifying. Than, the, yeah. <laughs> than the idea that the people who you think you know aren't really the people that you know? So it does remind me of a joke, though. There was a like a medical condition uh, joke where a, a patient and a doctor are consulting, and the doctor says, "Well, I've got good news and bad news." And he's like, "What's uh -huh. the bad news? Give it to me first." He says, "Well, this is an entirely new condition, so we don't know how to treat it." And he was like, "Oh my God! Well, what's the good news? Oh, oh, I get to name this condition after myself." What? <laughs> <laughs> He's good news. Yeah, uh, it does make me think of uh, stories of changelings. Yes. That, uh, you know, a child has been replaced or people have been replaced, but especially children. Absolutely. Yeah. And they usually leave these b bigger, bigger children in the <laughs> in the house. Absolutely. Right. You know, Those you know, there's a very famous. Much. Right. There's a very famous story. Uh, I believe it was in Ireland where there was a man who became convinced his wife was a changeling and ultimately murdered her. And, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard it uh, mentioned in conjunction with this syndrome, but now that I'm rethinking it. It actually has been linked with that. Okay, period. well, there you go. Because so, it sure yeah. sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was actually uh, probably the most famous case of, of Capgras and violence involved this man named Walter Karloftis who lived on Long Island. And he became convinced that his sister was not his sister, but it was a replacement. And so he subsequently murdered and dismembered his sister, put it, put her body in two pieces of luggage and left them on, I believe, on the beach. And he was brought to trial and eventually convicted. But through the entirety of the trial, he's like, that was not my sister. And this is one of the darker sides that, you know, isn't as much fun as watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Well, but you do you do see violence in 32 percent of cases. A fairly large review took place and they were, they were looking at the violence. And if you think about it, it makes sense because mm -hmm. in most cases of Capgra, the person that's replaced is a loved one. So um, it, it's somebody that you're usually very close to. And just as a thought experiment, what would you do if you thought you were living with somebody who wasn't who you thought they were? And even worse, they might even be the ones responsible for kidnapping your real loved one. What would you do? So it's not surprising if you think about it that you do see violence in almost a third of cases. And you see homicide occurring in 4% of these cases. Wow. Yeah, scary stuff. But if you think about it, high. yeah, but if you think about it, why isn't that even higher? 
So if those figures are accurate, how are 68% of people able to live in relative peace with somebody mm-hmm. who they firmly believe has replaced a loved one? I don't want to be be super negative, but I mean, sometimes marriages fall into sort of a... <laughs> <laughs> a, a routine and maybe it's not that closely examined anymore. It's like, it's like, I do. I do wonder about that. And reading the chapter, I was thinking about that. Is there, um, is it possible that people who are, um, in those situations where they don't become violent, it's because they're being medicated or they're being put into convalescent homes or psychiatric institutions uh, it could be if if they're identified, which which uh, might not be easy because just a lot of a lot of people don't know about this syndrome, even other medical professionals. Um, our best guess is that people who have the Capgras delusion, that's not the only cognitive sort of deficit they have. So they might have other problems with their reality testing and their ability to problem solve that might keep them in this very uncomfortable state where they can live and constantly accuse people of of being imposters. And I got to say, this is not an uncommon disorder. It sounds really bizarre and it makes for a great plot of movies. But you see this in three to four percent of psychiatric patients. Wow. And what I'm going to tell you next will blow your mind. But there are two studies that looked at Alzheimer's patients and they found that seven to 10 percent of Alzheimer's patients will suffer from this delusion. I've personally worked with three people that have suffered from Capgra. And it's even worse if you have somebody that has Lewy body dementia, one in five. Yeah. So unfortunately, yeah. I've, I've got personal experience with this. Someone in my family. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Um, someone in my family who's going through this, exactly what you're talking about, uh, has frequently uh, expressed concern that their spouse, I'm trying to be depersonalizes their spouse is uh not who they say they are or Mm -hmm. their spouse is the spouse's brother who is dead so that's not right so and so on there is it it, it's not all the time but just sometimes Mm -hmm. and also there was a sort of paranoid like conviction that this person was also cheating on them as well as not actually being their spouse which is Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of conflicting delusions going on at the same time sure uh, but and, I yeah. guess I guess linking them all, there's this real suspicion that the person is is who that you think they are, you know, or are they mm. uh, or are they type of person that could cheat on me? Exactly. Yeah, it's a lot of questions about trust and identity. I just wanted to comment to <laughs> Brian as well um, that it just makes me think about about uh, better known conditions, or certainly among the general public, that have some similarities with these conditions as well, like schizophrenia or mm-hmm. disassociative identity disorder. And I'm thinking Sybil um, here, and even BPD. So since we're talking about personal stories, someone in my family has recently been diagnosed with that. And, mm-hmm. and you know about that, Ryan. Sure. But um, it, it, I do see a little bit of crossover with just the issues with identity and uh, almost like sometimes a Jekyll and Hyde persona, um, you know, yeah. like a, a, the person's in two minds mm-hmm. or can be. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Maybe I'll, I'll start with the Fergoli delusion and then we'll kind of expand. Okay. Yeah, sound good? sounds good. Yeah. So there's another condition that has worked its way into, uh, to be honest, some of my absolute favorite horror movies, namely The Thing, starring the inimitable Kurt Russell, who I I just can't get enough Kurt Russell. And also it follows. So this is called the Fregoli delusion. And this is a unique condition because it was named not after the doctor who discovered it, but after an actor. Okay, so 
Back in the uh, late 1800s and early uh, 1900s, there was this actor named Leopoldo Fregoli, and he was famous for being a quick change artist. He could just, mm. within seconds, change wardrobes, and he had an uncanny ability to contort his body such that he could look like a small child or an old wow. woman or a full-grown man, like that. He was a, he was a sort of a physical genius. And so, it, needless to say, he was very famous. So when a couple of neurologists came upon an interesting case, they had Fregoli on their minds, no doubt. So the case goes like this, and it's a, a similar to Capra, but you'll see it has some important differences. So in this case, it was one woman who believed that she was being tormented by two Parisian actresses. Apparently, a lot of misidentification things happen in Paris. So these two actresses would take on the physical appearance of people that, that she was close to, like her sister, her mother, friends, and then they would torment her. They would also make her do unseemly things. She claimed that they forced her to masturbate and do things like that. So in instead of whereas in Capra, you have one person that you recognize as an identical looking replacement in the Fregoli delusion, you actually see one or two separate entities that have multiple appearances and that you can tell the differences, but mm -hmm. they look exactly like your sister, your friend, and then they are torturing you. And again, in this case, she was arrested um, for attacking a stranger in the street who she believed was one of the Parisian actresses. And so if you make this into a horror movie, you have The Thing. So in The Thing, um, these American researchers in the Arctic um, come upon an alien that was uh, frozen underground for 100,000 years. It first um, uh, mimics a husky and then it morphs into multiple huskies, and then it starts replacing the people. And so it looks identically like Wilford Brimley, <laughs> the Quaker Oats guy who's, who's in the movie as well. <laughs> um, and people are left wondering, well, who is the thing? Because again, it's identical, and it's the same alien consciousness that keeps shifting its appearances. And so it creates, a, you talked about paranoia, it creates a sense of paranoia that is really effective in horror movies. Watch Clark and watch him close, do you hear me? So now if you take that basic plot of the thing and you make it into a sexually transmitted disease, you have the basic plot of It Follows, which is a brilliant <laughs> film that came out in 2014. And here it follows this uh, young college student, I think she's 19, named Jay. And so she's on her third or fourth date with a guy and they have sex for the first time. And then as she's relaxing, you know, feeling very uh, calm and loved, he chloroforms her. And then she wakes up in a uh, wheelchair, tied to a wheelchair, and he's saying really crazy things to her. He says to her, you know, I passed this thing to you in the car back there, and now you're going to have a bunch of people that follow you and they're going to look different. They're, they're going to look different every time, but it's the same thing. And it sometimes will look like people you care about just to make it hurt even worse. So the best thing you can do is just sleep with someone immediately, pass it along to them. Cause otherwise if it kills you, then it's going to come back and then kill me and then go back the chain. It could look like someone, you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd, whatever helps it get close to you. 
So she doesn't believe him, of course. She thinks he's completely unhinged. Uh, who would believe him? But then she starts uh, being stalked by these these uh, entities that only she can see. And just like the thing and just like in the Fregoli delusion, it's the same entity that appears as many different faces and bodies. So, again, a really effective uh, horror movie premise and a really, really good movie. I've got a question about that. Do you think, Brian, that scriptwriters are inspired by these conditions uh, or do you think they haven't heard of them and it's, they're just using their imaginations? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I tried I, I tried to contact her, the the writer of It Follows, but he never got back to me. <laughs> My guess would <laughs> be, you know, uh, people like John Carpenter and, uh, you know, really good filmmakers. I think they have the ability to tap into things. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think John Carpenter is a brilliant guy. I don't think he was reading dusty old psychiatry journals. And, well, I mean, remember, he was he, he, he was reading the uh, John W. Campbell uh, who goes there, which is yeah. which is. Now, mm-hmm. And I don't know if John W. Campbell would have known, but he, he was obviously pretty widely read. Yep. Yeah, but it is an interesting question. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just like, no, yeah, no, no, the, the, the story's really good. You should read the story, but yeah, because <laughs> Carpenter goes back and, you know, he, he sort of makes it more like the the novella than the uh, original, the Howard, it's not Howard Hawks directing, but the Howard Hawks version, they call it. Yeah, so. yeah. But I think some, some filmmakers do self-consciously do it. So Wes Craven uh, based A Nightmare on Elm Street on a few different things, primarily the deaths of the Hmong population in Orange County, California. So he was very aware of what was called sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome, which is a mouthful. Um, and he he used some of the newspaper reports in, in the film. Some of the things Nancy did were done by some of the poor Hmong who died in their sleep. So in certain cases, you can see filmmakers self-consciously working in real-life disorders. And I think they should do it sure. more. In my yeah. book, the last chapter, I give a formula for how to do it in three very fast, simple <laughs> steps. But yeah, I can't imagine that they that John Carpenter and and David Robert Mitchell were aware of of this unusual syndrome. I got to tell you, mm-hmm. I graduated with a PhD in psychology from a very good program. Uh, people who are listening now know more about Capgra now than I did when I graduated. Wow. It just wasn't covered in, in my. Uh, mm. It just wasn't covered in my um, program because we have the entire DSM and it's mm, not in the yeah. DSM. <laughs> it's not. It's a thick book. but <laughs> yeah. It's well, not a codable diagnosis. You can you can code it as as something else, like a delusional disorder, not otherwise specified. But yeah, okay. that's, like, that's interesting. But it's also like putting other on a form. Everybody's just going to use other. That's other. What? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> well, uh, what, what is there any working model for why Fregoli or Capgra happen? Um, yeah. So for Capgra, the earliest theories uh, were formulated by some of Freud's followers. So they based it on the idea of splitting, which is a concept that you see um, in personality disorders. Uh, Karen mentioned that. So people with borderline personality disorder, they engage in a lot of splitting in one way where they can't see a person as gray. They vacillate between seeing them sort of as all good or all bad. It, it's very hard to see the nuanced gray in between. They're, very familiar with this, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And it can be very confusing, not only for mm -hmm. the, the, the person who's on the receiving end of the splitting, but for the person who's actually doing the splitting. Um, um, and then there's another uh, a sort of related concept where this is sort of how it would go. So in every relationship that you have, you know, and of course, don't don't think about your own lives here, no, no, <laughs> but, no. <Right>. but everybody, <laughs> everybody that you love, everybody you have a really deep relationship with, you also hate. There are also things about them. Of course, you love them. There are things you really value about them, but there are things that drive you up the wall that you can't stand. And so most of us can tolerate that and we can accept the uh, hateful things just as long as the as well as the loving things. And we can keep an integrated image. Some people, we think, can't quite do this. So what they do is they can't tolerate the idea that they hate the people they love. So those feelings get split off from the loving feelings. And so what the earliest theories of Capra would say would be the loving feelings now are with that partner who is gone. So the one they're pining for that has been replaced, that is the repository of the loving feelings. And all those nasty, hateful things get put on the replacement. So it's really a, a psychic compromise so that you can maintain some positive thoughts about your loved one while also accepting the, the negative thoughts. So it's an interesting theory. There's not a lot of data on it, but it does sort of um, – tap into one of the peculiarities of Capra, which is the people that are being replaced aren't the the milkman or, you know, your favorite <laughs> server. They're usually a first degree relative. It's it's uh, a, a parent or a spouse in most of the cases. So these are people who have complicated and very rich 
feelings and connections with. So their more modern theories um, apply what's called a two-hit theory to Capgra. And so the first hit is you have an unusual perception or a thought. So, um, you know, we've all had small experiences of, of depersonalization, for instance. So if you're one day, you know, washing your hands in the bathroom and you look at yourself in the mirror, you recognize that yourself, but something feels off. You might almost feel unreal for a second. Has, have you ever had one of those strange feelings? Only in the morning. Oh, yeah. what? <laughs> Only in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're really good. not uncommon, especially when people are having panic attacks. They can really feel that they or the environment are, are unreal. So that's a normal experience, and most of us dismiss it pretty easily, you know, just like I occasionally dismiss the thought that I might be unconventionally handsome. It quickly goes out the window. And <laughs> So again, so most, for me, only in the morning, it just yeah, exactly. two cars. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first hit. You get this unusual perception or thought, but you need the second hit to make the thought not go away. And in fact, become possible and even worse, plausible or even fully certain. And so that's where other conditions come into play. So um, you mentioned the psychotic disorders. So people that have psychotic disorders can also um, have Capgras syndromes. You can see this in very severe forms of depression that have psychotic features, but you can see it in seizure disorders, like I said, dementias. There are cases right. of people that have advanced HIV and AIDS developing Capgras syndromes because it affects their cognitive functioning so much. And in terms of brain stuff, uh, people that have lesions in particular parts of the right hemisphere, which is associated with um, identity and sometimes perceiving oneself and other people. So people that have lesions in that area can have it as well. And there was a case of somebody with intellectual disability who developed Capgras syndrome. So there are a number of, of second hits that might make it hard to get rid of that first unusual thought. And again, make it feel certain because this is a delusion. By definition, a delusion is a fixed thought that is not responsive responsive to counter evidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's very similar to a conspiracy theory, which again ties in mm. nicely into the movies. Because a lot of people that will have the very rigid, fixed conspiracy theories, it can reach the level of delusion. Well, yeah. you talk about this a bit in the chapter, uh, but when, when and I didn't answer it because it's not exactly the same thing which you were asking about, but one of my fears, an irrational fear that has been with me since I was a child, is the fear that I would go in front of a mirror and that my reflection would do something different than me. Sometimes mm. as little as wink or smile at me sinister, you know, just, yeah. and it's just like, that's all it takes to set me up. And then I can't look in the mirror as I brush my teeth. And even now I'm a rational human being and I know better, but late at night, you know, it's like, uh, I'm just going to look at the sink, you know? Yeah. Well, well mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> mirrors are worked up into so much mythology if you think about it. I mean, the 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 mirror vampire connection seems to be a Hollywood creation, but I mean, if you look at people uh you, you know, it, people of the Jewish faith, uh what they cover up mirrors after people die. It's a Bulgarian mm -hmm. tradition as well. And I mean, John Carpenter speaking of the man the myth, if you watch Prince of Darkness, mirrors played very heavily in that and and mirrors were a portal to hell. Mhm. Mm so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there's a, a, a different variation of the things we've been talking about called mirrored self-misidentification. 
And this is very similar to what your fear was if you actually didn't just fear it, but experienced it. Yes. So if you were looking at the mirror, you would not recognize your reflection. You would say that looks like Blake, but it's an autonomous entity that looks like Blake and it might not Mm. like you. (laughs) That's always the fear that it's not just that it's not me. It's that it's not me and it's got a bad intent. (laughs) Exactly. It might not just be winking at you. It might be flipping you off. Yeah. Uh, It hates me reflexively. Yeah. (laughs) And what's really strange with people that have this, you can show them a photograph of themselves and they will clearly recognize, hey, that's Blake. But when they're in front of a mirror, and Amir specifically, that's when they have this this misidentification. It's so fascinating. Yeah, Brian, this is a perfect lead-in to talk about doppelgangers. And we love doppelgangers. We haven't done a show on them yet. We, we really need to. But you mentioned the story of Catherine the Great in your yes. book. Could you tell us that, that tale? I, I will. I, let me, I will jump back a bit and say that just throughout history – the the mythology of doppelgangers is amazing. So I hope you do uh, do a do a, a show on that. But it was usually perceived as a harbinger of doom. Yes. So if you were to mm, see yep. your doppelganger, which is the posh German term for double walker, if you actually right. saw it, something really bad was going to happen. And there are cases of that. Um, so Percy Blythe Shelley, who is Mary Shelley's husband, the author of Frankenstein, he supposedly saw his doppelganger shortly before he drowned. Uh, Goethe also saw his doppelganger, but he lived a quite a long life. He was strangely comforted when he saw his doppelganger, but the best one is, as you're alluding to is the story of uh, Catherine the great. So this is probably apocryphal to be honest. I couldn't find mm-hmm. a lot of documentation, especially about what happened when she got assertive and I'll tell that tale in a minute. But <laughs> so the way it starts, <laughs> she reclines to her bedroom. And so she's laying on her fancy bed and one of the servants comes in and is very puzzled and says to her, you know, I, you're here, but I just saw you in the throne room. And she's like, what are you talking about? I've been here. So she gets up and gets her guards and she goes to the walks her way to the throne room and sitting there, on this ornate golden red chair, she sees herself just staring. And so she calls out to it and it makes no sound, doesn't respond, which she thinks is pretty strange, I'm guessing. And being a woman that never lacked assertion, she then orders her guards to fire upon it. (laughs) (laughs) And here's where, yeah, right. Totally sensible, but I, I couldn't figure out what happened when she fired upon it. So I, I, I found a few different versions of the story and they all ended with that. So I have no idea if, if, if they struck it or what, but she, you know, lived at least a few years after that, but yeah, probably an apocryphal tale. Yeah. Amazing though. Yes. Oh yeah. It's one of those things you hope is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, absolutely skepticism kind of can rob rob the fun out of life well sometimes. you know you could be skeptical but if you well I, I actually have run into a doppelganger of myself which was not a supernatural thing mm-hmm. so far as i know but it was so mm-hmm. stunning because it wasn't like someone looked kind of like me which i experience frequently like when i go to dragon con there's 30 or 40 of me walking around but but i mean to <laughs> someone who looks so much like me that both me and my wife 
mm-hmm. were, were startled by it. And we were across a busy restaurant. And so I started – I think I even had a shirt very similar to what I was wearing. And I went after him <laughs> trying to catch him. And he was with his family. And just people – it was like a movie. People kept stepping in front of me and, like, rolling trays out or coming – and it was like I couldn't get – just just – I finally got a really wow. – terrible photo of him from you know from way off and this was probably 2013 2012 so the phones weren't that great anyway it, yeah it was really disappointing <laughs> i really just wanted to meet him and because i mean he was probably about six inches taller than me but other than that he looked exactly like me and it was freaky so yeah anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah you will hear you will hear kind of experiences similar to this if you read uh, twin studies. So in Minnesota and in oh. Norway, they have these huge databases where they've, they brought in identical and fraternal twins for decades. Twin, identical twins that were, that were reared apart, when they do run upon each other, it is, it, they do describe it as being sort of uncanny in this very strange experience, sort of some, similar to, to what you were saying, where you were just struck by it and you you felt compelled to you know to uh get closer in spite of you're in a crowded restaurant you're getting all these um weird things happening they will have an experience sort of similar to what you said and it would be so bizarre you know um, maybe maybe there's a theory a weird story like this was on npr recently where it was uh a pair of identical twins and another pair had had one baby swapped. So the parents were raising, each of them was raising the other and their own child. The, wow. They met, the, the the doubles met when like one went into a bakery and it, it, someone began to joke with them about why weren't they somewhere else. You know, it just, it, and like finally mm. they met and realized then they, of course, they the brothers met. It's a really crazy story. But uh, yeah. yeah, I remember them talking about this. Well, you're joking. It's, this can't be real. What? How could this be? You know, like it's just yeah. super mysterious. How could I see myself outside? Yeah, of yeah. It's an out-of-body experience. <laughs> Is that really yeah, what my butt yeah. looks like? These are great questions. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Well, we should start to wrap things up. Uh, but I want to ask you, Brian, if there's any good news to this. Can these conditions be treated and how? Yes. The, well, the good news is sort of the bad news because it's so common that there have been, fortunately, um, lots of um, opportunities to you know, treat folks with this condition. So um, the main approach is really to treat what you think is driving the delusion. So if they have also have schizophrenia, you'd put them on an antipsychotic like Risperdal. If they're, you know, suffering from depression, throw them on citalopram, which is a very effective drug, which in small doses is, is very useful for the folks that have the dementia versions. People with dementia are exquisitely sensitive to medication side effects, so you have to be really careful with with them. But citalopram seems to be well tolerated in, in people with uh, Capgra from what the research studies say. Um, uh, a last course of treatment is pretty effective, electroconvulsive therapy, So, mm-hmm. which I, I think we might have talked about um, in the last time I was here, but it, it looks really scary, especially on one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it's, it's far more sophisticated than it used to be. And it, for people that have treatment refractory depression or psychotic depression, other things aren't working, this can be a godsend. It, really uh, mm-hmm. My grandmother yeah. lived to be 100 and probably would not have had she not had that. So, yeah. Some people used it pretty 
haphazardly kind of like how they were using um transorbital lobotomies i was for, thinking exactly yeah, of that. yeah. it's yeah. like well, this yeah. this, yeah. this has it's an strange. effect it has an effect it does yeah uh, yeah it, it, it does and, and oftentimes really a scary bad one but yeah. um the problem with every field and in medicine is no different is that once something new is created they start applying it to everything and sometimes sure. in the cases it's not a, not really appropriate for yeah. yep yep Oh yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but there so there are treatment options. Sadly, for my specific field, um, traditional psychotherapy doesn't seem to be terribly effective because, as oh. with every delusion, you can't really argue somebody out of a delusion. You can really set the stage for them to sort of argue themselves out of it. Uh, but there is a type of psychotherapy called supportive psychotherapy, which has different goals than traditional types of approaches and it might actually make it potentially more effective uh the other treatments more effective and more easy to kick Great. in and for the people that are living with it i think uh, uh, therapy for them could be useful as well because could you yes. imagine how hard it would be to live with somebody who you have to oh, take yeah. care of for their basic needs and yet they think you mm -hmm. are a uh, phony and you're keeping oh, yeah. their real loved one away from them it'd be horrifying so We've had you here discussing your book. We're super excited about it. There'll be links in the show notes. Uh, so our wrap-up question for you, because you're a repeat guest. You already told us your favorite monster. What are you doing for Halloween? Anything special? You got any favorite movies you're going to watch? What are you doing for Halloween? I am giving a talk on the book in D.C. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, more work. Perfect. A working work. holiday. <laughs> a working holiday. But I have a, actually have a few relatives coming. Um, and one of, uh, and my mother is actually coming. She's never seen me give a public lecture before. So don't forget that, uh, we'll uh, see the, the top, the so, content yeah. warning before you start. What? <laughs> yeah, right. right. So yeah. We'll, we'll see her reaction when I start getting into the ins and outs of cannibals. It's like, cannibals. that can't be my son. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Show off Capra. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with that. With a foul mouth to the <laughs> <laughs> this explains Love everything. It. Thank you yep. again. Thank you again for joining us Thank to talk you, about Brian. this. Yeah. Fascinating yeah, thanks stuff. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. We'll have to have you back on again. There's always something to talk about with you. All right. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with friend of the show, psychologist and author Brian Sharpless, discussing yet another fascinating chapter from his book, Monsters on the Couch. A link to his books in the show notes, so check it out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page, as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. 
Stay tuned because next week we'll be getting to some classic monster talk, combining monsters, the media, biology, hoaxes, exaggerations, and so much more. Oh, and a lot of pig jokes because we're finally going to tackle Hogzilla. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for making our little show a part of your big lives. Monster House presentation.